This podcast is brought to you by Interface, a global flooring company specializing in carbon neutral tile and resilient flooring, including luxury vinyl tile and Nora rubber flooring. Interface helps their customers create high-performance interior spaces that support well-being, productivity and creativity, as well as sustainability of the planet. Their mission, Climate Takeback, invites you to join Interface as they commit to operating in a way that is restorative to the planet and creates a climate fit for life. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic, and today we have with us in our virtual studio, Daniel Smith, Director of Leaf Architecture. Daniel Smith started Leaf Architecture in 2015 with the intention of creating a practice that has a strong focus on understanding of pedagogy and education design. Since then, Daniel has developed a significant portfolio of public and community projects completed over the last decade. He has been involved in all facets of architectural projects, including client consultation, master planning, detailed design, coordination of documentation and contract administration. Daniel's passion lies in education facilities, having spent his career concentrating on this sector with a comprehensive research and development focus. And some of his proudest work is not too far from here. It includes St. Joseph's Primary School of Kingswood and the Maronite College of the Holy Family in Harris Park, which is near Parramatta. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Daniel Smith. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, yeah. So tell me a bit about your journey in becoming an architect. And I ask that because... um, Everyone has a different journey um, when, it, when it comes to architecture. I find that uh, it, it, it's very, very unique. So tell me, how did you, when did you decide to become an architect? And, and about, tell me about your journey. I decided to become an architect actually when I was in primary school, believe it or not. I, I've come from a family that has uh, a little bit of an artistic background. Um, like both my grandmothers were sort of artists in certain senses, I guess you would say. Like one of them um, actually painted a lot. Um, and, you know, she, I wouldn't say like she was known for any of this. It was a bit of a, a hobby more so than anything. And in fact, my other grandmother used to sketch a lot um, as well as my mother. So there was a little bit of that, which was always encouraged as a child. But for me, I guess, personally, I was always um, as a kid, curious around space. And I guess it's that that thing as a child, you, you've got that sense of discovery and, and you want to delve in and figure out what's around the corner or, you know, what's over there. Um, and I guess the with those sort of two elements combined, I started to, to form an interest in the built environment. Um, not that I would have worded it that way at that point, but um, so the, the, it became, I guess, that sort of interest. And then um, you would also kind of say that um, I guess with a lot of the time that I spent with my father, which was, you know, essentially people watching, not in that sort of creepy way, but um, just really in a sort of interest and um, uh, just observational sort of thing. And and through that, I guess I became a little bit interested in um, people's behaviour. You know, why did they do things? And, um, uh, and I guess what's part of um, the environment perhaps that in- influences some of those behaviours? So, um uh, and I guess that's kind of where some of these things started to converge together. Um, and then 
you know, in school, doing a lot of things like tech drawing and getting quite good at that. Um, and then deciding, okay, I'm going to go and apply for architecture. And that's what I did. And that's when I learned actually what an architect does, which is, you know, a, a heck of a lot deeper than all of those things combined. So, yeah. Um, and, and I guess then following on from that, um, I, I grew up in, in the Western suburbs. I happened to get a job in a, a practice that was in Parramatta. So, um, and they happened to do a lot of schoolwork. Um, and then lo and behold, that's how I started to get introduced into the, that education environment. Um, so why why did you name your practice Leaf Architecture? Because you, know, you know, when I first saw the name, you know, you know, what, you know what, what comes to mind, right? What it, What's that? Uh, landscape architecture, isn't it? Yeah, actually, yes, yes. And one, we're going to have to employ a landscape architect at some point because when someone says, oh, can you do a playground design? I'm like, sure, of course. Um, uh, and uh, then we're like, oh, I have to get a landscape consultant. Like, Why? Um, uh, essentially, it was a multifaceted thing. So um, I guess for me, one of the things which I'd always kind of envisaged that I would probably be in, in, in partnership with other people. So it was kind of like a big thing for me to go out and sort of hang that shingle out um, on, on my own at that point. Um, and so basically at that point, I was kind of turning a new leaf. I don't mind a bit of a pun, to be honest. Um, and often when we're working with, with schools, they're going through big change. And often the architecture forces people to think not just about the space that they want. It's also about the the structure of the organisation, how they're going to teach and learn, how you're going to define pedagogy, um, because if you don't define pedagogy now, how do we actually define the space to reflect all of these things? So they're, they're usually going through some really deep change management principles, um, uh, whether it's, uh, I guess, intentional or perhaps as a bit of an accident. So keeping that sort of stuff in mind, but then also at the same time, um, I guess through those sort of curious moments as a child, I would always be quite um, enamored by the structural nature of trees and that sort of and how nature forms things. So, you know, you know, you know how you get sort of the, the wind that sort of um, encourages development, uh, for instance, of the branches and all those sorts of things. It sort of becomes that piece of sculpture um, that's uh, living and breathing. Um, so keeping those sorts of things in mind, I, I didn't want to be naming the practice after myself. I mean, Daniel Smith, that's pretty boring. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we want to have something with a little bit more life and character. And perhaps that doesn't necessarily um, solely reflect me um, as opposed to a team because it is a team sport um, architecture so all of that then um, would also then reflect some of the stuff that we do like if you look at the the, the anatomy of a leaf it's actually quite complicated there's lots of different um, sort of I don't, I don't know what you'd call them like say the veins of the leaf and all that sort of business that all kind of come together to create something that's elegant and that's essentially almost a metaphor for what architecture is we bring a lot of complicated difficult problem solving together and we should do that in concert to create something that's beautiful and unique and that to me is a leaf what other did you get any inspiration from other ventures like i know that i know that some architecture firms when they start they they think well you know i want to be like x because you know i work there or, or i i know some of the work that i think they do work is there something that you had in mind as in terms of what you're what leaf architecture was going to be like. If I sort of wind the clock back a little bit and kind of explain the decision making that made that that point. So I I was really fortunate that when I finished uni, I got a job straight away. Um, in fact, I got the phone call while I was making my final model, um, heavily fatigued and gluing my fingers together and all these sorts of things. But um, 
I, I ended up getting a job at the practice that I, I worked at as a, as a student and um, once again, happened to do schools. So I had the real good fortune of working on a brand new school down south um, called Corpus Christi Catholic High School um, in, in Oak Flats. And that was kind of the, the first foray of um, Greg Whitby um, in the, I guess, in his approach to reinventing the delivery of education in New South Wales. Um, I, at that particular time, I didn't really have an appreciation for what the changes were in education, um, but I was learning my craft. So that project took me about um, seven and a half years from go to woe. So for master planning and then successive stages. And really, each stage, I was learning a heck of a lot more and more and more and sort of growing into that 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 role as an architect. So learning how to design, learning how to document, learning how to run sites um, with builders and um, learning how to manage problems when they arise, because there is a problem on every single construction site at some point. Um, and you've got to learn how to think on your feet and all those sorts of things. So I kind of learned the craft in that manner. But at the same time, I started to dig in a little bit deeper and to like ask, why? Why are we doing it this way? Why is it you know, um, not like a typical school? All those sorts of things. And um, through that, I started to get sort of in tune with um, um, uh, the, the, the detail around the pedagogy and, and, and getting that, that deeper understanding into education. And that's kind of when I started to get a little bit of a hook. Um, and then there was a bit of a um, pivotal moment where I got to go to a, a conference with Learning Environments Australasia, which is the peak body for school design. Um, and there was a conference in 2008 in Melbourne, and I got to go to a school which was designed by Mary Featherston um, in Warrenora Park. And that school just blew my mind what they were doing. Um, it was a school which had um, basically uh, reduced in student numbers. So they had a lot more space to play with. So they went to town and they created the most amazing education facility. And, and really at that point, because I could talk about some of the really um, topical um, conversations in education at that point, I got that hook, that taste of being able to, um, I guess, be that connector between the emerging research and development across the the, the country with, with my clients. And essentially, um, when I went out to start Leaf Architecture, sort of go back to the original question, um, I wanted to enable uh, or create a practice that actually enabled a lot of these things. I, I worked in a national practice and they did education, but they didn't necessarily um, have the framework or the understanding that you sometimes with education, some of the projects are small, some of them are large, and we have to kind of create that framework that will adapt and evolve through all sorts of different things um, to help our, our, our educators achieve the, the dreams that, they, that they've got. And essentially, that was kind of one of the, the deciding parts, because obviously, um, I could void the tears around education, I love it to bits. And the, the thing um, which has really enabled us to do in this practice is create a, 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 a focus on um, doing better in the world. So doing something where, uh, you know, if you come back in a couple of years, you'll hear all these success stories that are coming out from these schools because they've given people an opportunity of education. And, and that's the sort of thing that really gets me. Um, I have had the fortune or opportunity, whichever words you want to use, um, to work on 
master plans for RSLs and it didn't really resonate with me, like walking people past poker machines and keeping lines of sight to the bar. It just seems like we're, we're doing things that aren't really helpful for communities, um, but with education projects, community type projects, we are. We're leaving a, um, a, a, a lasting legacy um, that really can help enable people. And one of the things I guess that's really kind of motivated me, like growing up, we had a really big focus around education in our family. And, and a lot of that came through because, um, you know, my, my grandmother, who was born in the early 1900s, she was born out of wedlock. And, you know, at that time, like, oh, that's terrible. Um, so she grew up in an orphanage. She didn't have the opportunity of a really deep and, and, and good education. And also because she was female at that time, why would you invest in education in a female, so to speak? It was the, the nature of the day. It was just wrong. Um, and she was in, a, in a, her latter part of life um, working as a cleaner in the state library. And one of her colleagues um, joined and she only spoke Spanish. So my grandmother decided, OK, well, I'm going to teach myself Spanish so I can talk to her. So she did that. But this is where the gift of education comes in, because in essence, um, <clears throat> what that enabled her to do was go and travel around the world, meet all these friends and have these marvellous opportunities that she wouldn't have had if she didn't have the confidence of that education. And then I think, what would be if she had that moment in kindergarten and if we were really intentional and focused around how best to educate our young people to give them the skills for the future workplace at that point in time and bring them along on that education journey in an orchestrated manner carefully um, um, constructed space that actually reflects the pedagogy now that is powerful and this is an opportunity that a country like Australia has we're a first world country we have the resources to do this and we can. Belief architecture is the focus on education and community projects not RSLs which is fine um, but you've told me a bit about what inspired you, but, you know, there is a thing that, that, that is, what is it, good education equals a good foundation for life, which is something that you've, you've alluded to. Is that the only thing that drives you about, about working in this segment? Because, you know, this segment is fairly, I won't say narrow, but it's, it's, it's not like, it's not like residential where you've got constant, you've got a constant flow. Well, this would be stop at start, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be that, you know, you're not well, designing schools every every week, are you? Or are you? Well, I am, yeah. Um, I'd yeah. say 99% of our work, if I'm going to make up statistics, is school projects. Okay. Um, so if, yeah, no, if we actually, some of these stats aren't up to date, but if you have a look at the statistics, um, I think the last time I really delved in deeply would have been 2018. Um, and at that point in time, New South Wales would have had to build, I think it was something like in the order of another 100 high schools or something across the state. And that's ignoring the, the schools that are in a degrading um, condition yep. that needs to basically get a, a lot of work. There's the, it is actually quite a busy sector. Um, and um, it's actually a, a lot broader than what most people actually give credit to. So sometimes we get um for instance people coming into the practice and they think oh you only do schools i, I want to do you know hotels or something like that and i kind of think well if you're doing that you're kind of doing the same thing each and every time but for us it legitimately is quite different on one job we might be doing a library um, another job we might be doing an office block which would be say the administration another job we might be doing a performing arts center Another job might be a sports centre. Another job might be, say, an innovative learning environment or a, 
um, a food tech space or a hospitality kitchen with a cafe and all these sorts of things. It's kind of like um, getting a sample of really the best of a city and we're putting it onto a campus. Um, so I think a lot of that um, really is kind of what gets me um, excited because every pro project is legitimately quite different. Every community is a little bit different. Um, and it's it's quite interesting from that sort of coming back to that behaviour of people, so, sort of getting that understanding as to what makes them tick and, and how we're we actually going to design um, a a building or a space for them that will actually reflect their needs. But, you know, we, we do take um, cues from other types of architecture and we draw that sort of in. A, a lot of education, if we speak to some of the, uh, the more innovative educators in this country, a lot of them really talk about trying to drive up engagement. We've got kids who are really in a rock and a hard place at times because they've got so many competing interests trying to get their attention consistently throughout the day. Um, when we've got the, uh, the the constant onslaught of social media trying to draw them through, we've got um, perhaps at times quite a dry delivery of education. Um, so if we flip and evolve some of these things, we can actually start to look at education, also learning environments in a very different way. So I think if we take cues from retail architecture, retail architecture is really strong at dangling that little bit of interest and sort of luring you in. So you've got that opportunity to um, inquire and start to like explore different things. And if we think of um, our schools a little bit in that way, we can start to get kids a little bit more excited about the opportunities that school will afford them. Um, further to that, I think one of the things when we look at a lot of the challenges around um, perhaps in our emerging generations, it really comes down to some things like perhaps they lack a little bit on the communication skills. They, they're quite good at um, you know, texting and all this sort of other things. But when we're doing the things that we're doing now might be a little bit uh, intimidating for them. So um, further to that, the, the resilience and the understanding that actually takes time to develop skills. This is not something that happens overnight. You know, I often use the, the adage of year seven music to year 12 music is quite different. Year 12 is music, year seven might be classed as noise, depending on the kid. Um, and in all these sorts of things where, um, you know, it show that time and that iteration. And if you keep chipping away at something and get that little bit better, um, then, then, some of the things that you can do with that mindset are really profound, but you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and, and often in our society, we aren't comfortable being uncomfortable because we want to get it immediately. And then we want to say that we're successful, um, whatever that means for you. So, yeah. And further to that, you, we often take cues from airports in terms of moving people around because the things where schools are really unique is that we evacuate those buildings multiple times throughout the day circulation is paramount and often underrated um, and then we if we use that sort of airport mentality and combine that with retail architecture we actually start to get a lot of bang for buck in terms of when we're moving people through a space and trying to draw and lure their curiosity in um, yeah and it's those sorts of things plus drawing along uh, a lot of the research around biophilic design principles I think that specifically in schools is really powerful Interface is a leading provider and local manufacturer of flooring solutions and global leader in, in sustainability. They've recently achieved a carbon negative milestone, launching the world's first carbon negative carpet tile. 
Interface has been leading the way by reducing the carbon footprint of their products and manufacturing processes for more than two decades because only by working together with designers, engineers and scientists can we make the changes required to reverse global warming. And now back to our podcast. So on that point, though, how has education changed over the past 20 years? I mean, I've hmm. noticed, I mean, like I can remember my school, okay? It was a concrete paradise, dare I say. But um, everything was concrete. You know, the bubbles were concrete. The, the toilets were concrete. You know, I learned to love concrete. But far that, um, mm-hmm. how have things changed? We're, we're also now talking, um, well, we were talking, though, pre-COVID, we are talking about vertical schools. I, I think, I think mm. that uh, calmed down a bit. But, you know, there, there, there are other things about, in terms of classrooms, you know, they're, they're doing these sort of, uh, multi-purpose classrooms. It's basically a warehouse full of, full of little kids. Mm. Um, you know, what about the space? What about you know? What about the end goal? How has mm. educa- education design changed over the past like, 2025? Uh, it's been significant change. Um, when I first started, it would have been very similar to what you've experienced: cellular classrooms, boxes, front of house. 30 kids come in, they all face one direction. The teacher is all source of knowledge. And then they basically spit out the knowledge. Kids try to catch it. And then we'll test you at the end of the, the year. Um, then we moved through to in that um, that example of Corpus Christi uh, with Greg Whitby, where um, we started to look at if we had multiple teachers in a space and we're actually playing to skill sets uh, more so than everyone doing the same thing at the same time, um, then we could actually start to adapt education. So uh, we could start to put the focus more around the learner rather than the teacher and start to have more individualization around education. Um, And what what happened with that particular uh, example was we ended up with some large barn-like spaces where furniture was king and we would just be able to move around and adapt it if it happens change say per hour or per day Um, and I think a lot of that um, which was innovative for its day when we look back at that now we probably wouldn't do that again because there's a lot of um, things that kind of get missed in that in that framework so when you're talking about those warehouse type spaces you would probably find that they're quite nuanced or detailed in terms of their fit out. So there would be a lot of focus around the learning setting. So coming back to those behavioral patterns that we're you know, saying that is quite interesting. If we design spaces to encourage specific learning behaviors, then we're going to gently encourage our young people to explore uh, and work through their learning in a different way. So if you think about perhaps um, kind of like that, that analogy around or not analogy, um, if we look at, say, a learning cycle, for instance, where we might start by getting kids really excited about a particular topic, and it really doesn't matter what topic it is, as long as it's something which is interesting to them rather than the teacher. Um, and then through that, they can go and explore a whole range of different research type questions. Um, and in that would be all the fundamentals of literacy and numeracy and all those sorts of things. But at the same token, they're learning how to work with other people. So 
they're negotiating, they're learning how to communicate with each other. And, and often um, then teachers would sort of insert themselves and encourage different things to happen. Because often what you'd find is that kids will naturally kind of adapt to where they're really strong. But we want to use these environments to sort of not just focus on that, but how to uplift where perhaps they, they, they've got opportunities for development. Um, so if you're quite gifted with communicating verbally then how about we create a poster this time so to speak so you know you you learn and sort of um, uh, adapt some of that uh, perhaps artistic or creative side uh, as well in all of that sort of framework which is very kind of top level basic under uh, reflection of it um, we, we end up with those really heavily nuanced um, designs that are fundamentally around the key parts of that pedagogy um, that defines those learning behaviours, if any of that makes sense, I'm not sure. But um, And I think then when we dig that little bit deeper into the qualitative aspects of space um, and get that right, because often in schools, perhaps when you're talking about your concrete jungle experience, that would be not that different from mine, but perhaps replace concrete with bitumen or something like that, just to jazz it up a bit. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, um, if we introduce um, some really key foundational things like designing for that sense of naturalness, natural light, natural ventilation, natural materials, view lines to something natural, there is research that states, peer-reviewed research that, that states that will actually increase learning gains for somewhere between, I think it's 12 to 4, um, 16%, somewhere in that nature. Um, and that's not something to uh, really laugh at. And, and when we think about when we're designing spaces for people, irrespective of it being for students, for teachers, workers, whatever, um, we create spaces that actually respond to the natural rhythms of the body. Um, and in that instance, we can create these really, um, uh, once again, intentional research-driven designs that um, for in, in the school context enables kids to maintain engagement if we get their engagement we're more likely to get them to learn and if we then configure the space in a way that enables them to work together in different ways we can now start to layer up those soft skills so the skills that are going to be needed for the future workplace um, like at the end of the day you can kind of google stuff you don't necessarily need to repeat back as many facts as what you once did um, but if you've got those core skills of working with people then it will be amazing what you can achieve um, across the, the course of your life. And I think often kind of think like for a kindergarten child today, um, they don't leave school until 2035 or something of that nature. And if we're basing a lot of our thinking uh, perhaps around the 1980s or whatever it was when we were educated, that's already vastly too late. Um, we've got to think a little bit more ahead. And that's where um, being really careful around each of those learning setting choices. What do they actually need? What, what skill sets will they need to be able to adapt and evolve with um, over the course of their career and create a space that will actually help them stay engaged um, with that sense of naturalness? Then I think we're really on a, on a, on a good pathway. There is also the, the well-being part that you mentioned. I mean, what about biophilic design? That's something that the reason is that something that's, that's, that's important in, in, in Australian schools. And the reason I ask that is because, I mean, despite what, what is said, Sydney and Melbourne are pretty well, Brisbane as well. I don't know about the other, other cities, but they're fairly green cities in terms of, mm. in terms of you know, the amount of trees we have. And we're not like some parts of the world where we literally are concrete jungles. Um, 
Yeah. Is biophilic design uh, something that that's that, that's that's made into in the world of education design? It is now, and it probably needs to take another step or two to be a little bit more um, deeply integrated into a lot of the work. And often this comes down to investment by the client um, and, and a, bit, a bit of understanding around that. But if you look at what happened in the 1970s, where there was a lot of highlight windows brought into classrooms because we don't want the kids looking outside, they'll get distracted. But then we kind of fatigue our kids at the same time. So it doesn't matter if they're distracted, we're putting them to sleep. And, and when you look at a lot of the research around these sorts of things, um, you know, we've, we've all worked in probably commercial office buildings where we've got fluorescent lights, um, these hermetically sealed boxes um, with limited fresh air. And then often you'll hear people talk when they walk outside at five o'clock, um, obviously not architects, we don't leave at five, but other people who leave at five, they'll walk out and then they'll get this burst of, of energy and their second wind. And, and really they're not getting a second wind, the building has been putting them to sleep. And this is what we do to our young people in schools typically. So there is a, a real strong push by um I'd say the uh, more progressive education systems to start to think a little bit more deeply around that. Um, and, and in essence, um, even if they get perhaps some of those principles right, it, they're, they're, they're taking a really huge step forward and then the architecture can actually start to, um, I think, have a demonstrated impact on our young people's learning. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of simple premises. Once again, natural light, you get, in that sort of um, circadian rhythm uh, of the day, natural ventilation, that fresh air. Um, we often have the catch cry that if you want to educate, you're going to have to ventilate. Um, we will put kids to sleep if there's too much CO2 in that, that, the space. So often what we would do is put in what I would refer to as dumb CO2 monitors in the sense that we don't want them to do anything. We want them to trigger thought. So there'll be a little alarm that'll go off saying, you know, okay, we should probably now think about opening up the windows because we don't have enough fresh air in the space. So it's kind of like using that premise from um, the, the, the advertising campaign from the 80s, click, clack, front and back. If we get young people thinking about how to manipulate their space, they will drive that agenda rather than trying to get the teachers who are already busy and stressed. You once said that you believe that through, <clears throat> excuse me, through intentional research-driven design, we can improve the learning outcomes for the next generation and that a grounding comment for, for you was that kindergarten, the, the kindergarten child today will not complete school until 2034. Uh, I think you said there's a couple and, of actually. Um, yeah. So, so, so what I was going to ask is what, what, so whatever we think today, in a way, it's kind of almost too late, isn't it? So how it's redundant. Yeah. So how does an architect like you, I mean, you almost have to become a futurist, don't you? Yeah, we've got to um, keep an eye set, an eye on, I guess, those emerging trends. Um, where What are we doing perhaps down track um, that might be common irrespective of the career path? Because if you think about it, there would have been kids that we went to school with that are now in career paths that weren't around when we were in school. You know, we would know people who are app developers and I didn't have a smartphone when I was at school. Um, you know, we had one computer for the family. I didn't get the internet until I was 18. Um, so in that sense, um, 
the pace of change is significant. So using, I guess that, um, I think there was a, a phrase by, uh, I forget who said it, to be honest, and you probably Google it for me, but um, you know, if you think the pace of change is fast now, it will never be this slow again. And thinking about that, um, and it sounds like it's a bit of a whimsical statement, but in reality, when we think about the change that we've experienced in our life, it's actually been quite significant and it will continue to be that way. So for us, we kind of focus on what are the adaptive skills um, for our learners. So that's coming down to, um, if you want to sort of simplify it, say the four C's, you'll have um, creativity. So, and that might be like, you don't have to be an architect to be creative. You don't have to be an artist. You could be a mathematician and be really creative with your approach. In other words, it's sort of coming down to some of those problem solving um, abilities and kind of unifying divergent facts and sort of coming up with different, uh, I guess, ways of doing things. And that's what we would refer to as deep thinking or deep learning. Um, further to that, then, um, collaboration we're going to have to keep working on our skills working with other people and I think we've all probably worked with someone at some point in their life that we think oh they're really gifted at what they do but man they just can't work with other people that isn't tolerable as we move into our future workplaces um, so keeping those sorts of things in mind we also have to be effective communicators like um, last night I had the, the good fortune of meeting a researcher in um in internal, uh, sorry, in indoor environmental quality. And that researcher was a gifted communicator. Like he will spread that message. But if we then, for instance, look at a lot of say um, academia, perhaps where their skill really is in the research, they kind of do need to be partnered with someone with good communication skills. But once again, if we get them from a young age and we help grow those skills, they will be a lot more effective. Um, and then um, the critical thinking skills. So um, these are the sorts of things where I guess when we've got the rise of AI, um, what are the sorts of things that will differentiate humanity from doing perhaps repetitive tasks? So um, and often when you talk to futurists around what is the future workplace going to look like, a lot of it will come down to really niche, detailed um, career paths or kind of like lifestyle career paths like um, personal training and, you know, all those sorts of things where um, it is kind of still like that, that interaction with uh, a, a person. So coming back to the original question in terms of what can we do, uh, for instance, to help adapt that is creating those learning environments that will surreptitiously draw those skill sets, enable kids to um, communicate their learning. So for us, we often look at every surface in a learning studio um, and we would like to give every one of them purpose for learning. So I personally think um, painted white plasterboard is the enemy of schools. Um, it might give us a nice photo at the end of the day, but it's actually not really helpful for us to display and visualize our thinking. So if we use our wall surfaces for um, display, like for instance, like what we're trying to talk about, I'm trying to talk to you about various um, uh, uh, strategies in learning environment. If I was showing you some images and, and, and past you know, experience, then in that regard, when we're kind of going to go to a deeper level in our conversation and we can do that within the learning space um, by helping sort of um, show and demonstrate the thinking and go deeper. Um, so th th there's things like that. But I think 
if we were to look to the future um, and think about where the key changes are, like what's next, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to start thinking about cities as schools or cities as learning environments. Um, and I think when you look at some of the, uh, the work that's happening now um, and has been around for quite some time, um, there's a, there was a school in um, Christchurch, which I had the good fortune of touring probably, when was that, 2009 or something like that. It was called Unlimited. Um, it was a public school in the centre of Christchurch. Obviously, it's since unfortunately been demolished and they've been reconstructing um, following the earthquakes. But what they did was they used the city library as opposed to creating a, a duplicate facility. They used the perhaps the the kitchen, um, the commercial kitchen in an adjacent restaurant to teach kids, uh, for instance, hospitality. So they're all authentic opportunities for kids rather than creating these sterile environments that are then disconnected from reality. So keeping that sense of authenticity enables our learners to then, I guess, get that extra bit of excitement. Um, and, and, and I think if you think about now with your professional learning today, where do you get the most bang for buck? It's usually when it's really um, helpful for you specifically in your role. Um, and we can kind of do those sorts of things with our, with our kids by providing um, the, the authentic opportunity. If we then start to think about that, then there's actually a lot of opportunity for us to think about schools to help foster that lifelong learning. So one of the things where I think the stats are that I think people would have four or five career paths potentially across the course of their life. Um, and if we then get and use these resources that we're building for our communities to be able to um, encourage that adaptation um, and evolution as we're going through this consistent change, then I think that would also be quite um, uh, important. But I think, um, if anything, the, the process of what we've gone through with COVID, with schools and how they've all had to adapt and, and do so in an aggressive timeframe um, does kind of then start to say, well, what are the opportunities that are afforded through that? And I think, um, and this is where perhaps architecture can take a bit of a twist and a turn um, and perhaps delve into the metaverse. And I think that's where perhaps if you're going to learn French, why would you do that in a room in Sydney when you could do that with a French person? Yes, in a virtual environment. It wouldn't matter if you're perhaps in the back of Burke or wherever. Um, we're now in a globally connected world. Why not actually start to use that? And why not start to develop um, sort of a, that global connection, um, which can help inform and can help increase that sense of empathy from person to person? But, you know, those are the sorts of opportunities that I, I think are there. Plus, when I, when I look at a lot of the work that's done out of the University of Melbourne through Professor Wesley Yims, he's probably the preeminent education um, researcher, uh, I think, globally. Um, and there's a lot of work that he's particularly doing that's focusing around um, um, community uh, schools as community hubs um, and uh, the sort of demonstrating what innovative learning environments are actually capable of doing. Um, and a lot of the research that he's shown is that those spaces do perform better than cellular classrooms. It is a fact, irrespective of perhaps what was recently implied by the City Morning Herald. Which was what one? Um, it was, there was a, I think, a parliamentary inquiry, which was led by Mark Latham. Um, so you can imagine the sorts of material that was in there, which was suggesting that we need to go back to a traditional form of classroom. Um, and in, in essence, um, from what I understand, they hadn't really consulted with any educators or people um, with demonstrated skills in that environment. 
which is really unfortunate. It's just a political catch cry. Um, and, and this is what we end up facing quite often when schools are looking to adapt and evolve into uh, new ways of learning. People feel like it's an experiment. This is not an experiment. This has been going on for quite some time. I've been working in this space for 20 years. Um, so that's a depth of time as it stands. And prior to that, um, states like Western Australia and South Australia had already been doing that for probably 10 to 15 years prior. Plus Europe had been doing that well in advance of that again. This is an old concept. This is not new. Um, yeah. So when it comes to education design, what, in your opinion, is the best design of school? Anyway, you can take an example of where in the world. And why do you think this example is, is, is the best? And why, and should we copy it here? Anything, I, I guess, this will be a wishy-washy answer, so I apologise about this, but I don't think there is the best design in schools. I think that we need to keep choice and we need to keep differentiation within that. So as an example, we're working with a school with a couple of different campuses. On one school campus, there is a really strong differentiation between the variety of cultures that kind of converge onto this site. Um, and through that, um, we've also, so there's a really kind of trying to use a lot of performing arts, for instance, to try to unify these kids together to give them that sense of um, combined identity, um, whilst then acknowledging that they're coming from a low socioeconomic community and, and some of the, the um, developmental skills are fairly low when they're onboarded into this school. So there's um, a lot of need for those some kids to be uh, perhaps taken aside so they can be given a little bit more intensive teaching to bring them up to speed before they can um, perhaps uh, uh, participate with the rest of the cohort in a, in a typical manner. On the other campus, for instance, um, that's in more of an emerging community, a lot of professional parents. Every kid, if you ask the parent, is part of um, a, the Gifted and Talented program. Um, so it needs to have a more submersive experience around um, learning support. So like anything, um, different people can learn the same thing, but they have to perhaps do it differently. Like when you look at a lot of the work around ADHD and, and stuff like that, um, they can learn the same if we allow them to move and, and, and jump and, you know, shift their weight around, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think kind of like that, it's understanding the cohort that you're designing for. So you can actually reflect that. But I think the days of putting 30 kids into a room facing one direction, asking them to sit still and not move should be over. Um, Mark Latham would not be happy. Um, no, no. <laughs> dare I say, you're not, you're not the only one that um, loved the part. This has been a very, very educational talk. Daniel Smith, Director of Relief Architecture, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast was brought to you in association with Interface, proud sponsors of the sustainability series of podcasts. For more information on Interface, go to www.interface.com. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design, part of the Architecture and Design Network, which includes Architecture and Design Online, the Architecture and Design Newsletter, and Architecture and Design Print Magazine. 
For more information, go to www.architectureanddesign.com.au.